a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Very happy to uh, make your acquaintance if you're checking it out for the first time. And if you're a longtime listener, welcome back, my fellow wrong thinker. Want to mention the sponsors of our show. These are the folks who help make it possible for me to do what I do. And, and I say that with the understanding that for some people, it's like, yeah, what you do, you sit and you talk, <laughs> you, you read articles, you interview people. It's true, I do, but uh, I do it for the purpose of helping to create clarity for those who are actually looking for such a thing. And sometimes it's a little hard to admit, but uh, the truth of the matter is not everybody wants it. Not everybody wants to understand what's going on. Not everybody cares about it. And, of course, there aren't that many people who really seem that interested in doing something about it. But if you are one of the people who feels like, look, I wasn't born to be a leaf carried by the current just wherever it may go, but that you have a destiny, that you have a role to play in uh, in whatever it is, a big way, a small way, you have something that you were sent here to do, then I am definitely speaking to you. My sponsors include MonticelloCollege.org, also LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Now, I have links, hyperlinks in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com. These are show notes for August 2nd. You can just uh, go to those links, click on them. It'll take you right to these sponsors. And if you need their product or their service, please feel free to, you know, to do business with them. Otherwise, drop them a line and tell them, hey... I heard Brian talking about you, just so they know that their message is reaching your ears. Thought today it might be fun to uh, take a little closer look about why our freedoms are evaporating like water droplets from a hot sidewalk. By the way, that seemed like a useful metaphor because <laughs> I think a lot of people have been feeling that lately. Unless, of course, you're in the uh, southern Utah area, in which case I, I have to take a moment here and just tell you, I spent, uh, what, 12 yeah, 12, almost 13 years living in Cedar City, Utah. Beautiful little place. Relatively undiscovered, which uh, is, is a good thing. It, it could be the Park City of Southern Utah if it wanted to. Thankfully, it still has a, a very nice hometown feel. But holy cow. I know throughout Southern Utah, a lot of people have been praying for relief from the drought. And by the way, that's a legit drought. It's a it's been a bad bad year for water, not just in Utah and southern Utah, but all across the Intermountain West. But wow, have they had the rain. And Cedar City got pounded a couple of times in the last week or so with massive monsoon storms, serious flooding, some of the worst flooding in in the history of the area. So I I'm mentioning this not just to remind you, yes, disasters are taking place. I mention this because if you want to see how good people can be to come to to rally to one another's aid, whether it's filling and stacking sandbags, whether it's mucking mud and pumping water out of people's basements, seen a lot of that in the Cedar City area here of late. So I'm, I'm very sad for those who have lost property, who have suffered damages, but I couldn't be more proud 
of the kind of people that they live with and, and around who would come to their aid. And I mean, they did this before the rain even stopped falling. People were, how can I help? I mean, there's a laundromat there in town that's saying, hey, we're going to offer uh, free washes and dries for anybody who needs to get their laundry done. Um, people just say, look, I've got a submersible pump. Where can I go? That's the way, that's a mentality that we need to have generally. And I guess it's a lot easier if you actually know your neighbors to, to want to look out for them. So I'll just leave that there for what it's worth. But let's take a look at why our freedoms are evaporating so quickly. And I want to start with the big picture. So we're going to zoom out here to about 30,000 feet. And there we can see a perfect storm of economic trouble, civic decay, and geopolitical instability that's been developing, coming to a head for the past few years. Now, you know, I've talked for years about, you know, the fourth turning and about, uh, you know, there's a storm that's coming. And I think it's pretty safe to say that storm began a while back. If last year wasn't a part of that storm, man, I don't want to see what, what the rest of it looks like. But I'm pretty certain we're, we're in the eye of the storm for the moment. Thomas Luongo, in a piece published on LouRockwell.com, has a marvelous essay about uh, the, the eye of the storm thanks to, uh, thanks to Davos. I'm probably saying it wrong, but this is where all the elites met you know, to, to map out where are we going to take the future of the globe. This is where uh, the very well-connected, not just political leaders, but uh, very, uh, very large uh, corporate leaders, financiers, and so forth. I mean, you, you can start to look at it from a conspiratorial point of view if you want, but the fact of the matter is, these are people who have their hands on the levers of power. Not all of them are elected, but they certainly are trying to uh, move some things to their advantage. Here is the take from Thomas Luongo. He says, Congress recessed for the summer, passing neither the infrastructure nor spending bills that were the focus of all of Washington's attention for weeks, thanks to Kristen Sinema from Arizona. She personally torpedoed the Biden administration's signature piece of legislation that took months to wrangle to that point, and then she gave the whole thing a big John McCain-like thumbs down. Now, the debt ceiling suspension put in place under Trump has not been renewed. We're currently more than $6 trillion over it as he writes this. He says, fungal President Joe Biden looked up from his jello cup long enough to implore Congress to extend the eviction moratorium for those behind on rent and mortgage payments, which has been in place for more than a year. Estimates are 6.5 million people will now face eviction who are behind on their rent. He says, U.S. tax cows have drawn down their savings at an alarming rate while facing this eviction cliff. By the way, that's you and me. (laughs) But hey, your per-child tax credit is now showing up as a monthly check as long as the post office stays on the job. And by the way, they're refusing to go along with Biden's plans for forcing all government employees to be vaccinated against a virus which isn't killing anyone anymore. The latest wave of homeless people wandering the streets of the U.S. over the next year, he says, will be used by the Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself, to demonize the evil Republicans for not doing something about this new crisis. Now, here's the important part. Never mind that it was wholly manufactured by locking down parts of the world and blowing up both the financial markets and disrupting the natural flow of goods that is a functional economy. He says the panic that many feel will be real, but the question is who is actually panicking? 
Is it the dirty spreaders, the anti-science losers who refuse to take an experimental gene therapy, or the ones who ordered all of this insanity in the first place for their own personal and political gain? That's a good question. He says at every turn that the Biden administration lost major political battles in the last week. There's no denying that. That's an unqualified good thing. It ensures the anger and frustration over the direction of the country post-Trump will be unstoppable come the midterm elections, despite even the expected voter fraud next fall. He says we can count on that, just like we could count on it in 2020. But the bigger question I have now is whether or not we'll actually have those elections if it looks like we'll have a landslide on the populist side of the political ledger. What the little people want is anathema to what those who congregate every year at Davos, Switzerland, to plot out their dystopian future plans for humanity. So the odds are, or the odds rise rather, every day that they will suspend elections in Germany or France as a trial run for next fall's midterms. In fact, he says, book this prediction and double down on it regularly. You might make more on it than in the coming crypto bull market, but only barely. In fact, he says, when you stop and think this through in normal political calculus, how can Biden and Pelosi spin their failures as anything like victories now? The truth is plain to everyone. They lied, cheated, stole, and by all rational accounts, staged a coup on January 6th. They have everything they wanted, all the power of the legislative and executive branches, while simultaneously cowing the judicial branch into irrelevance. And a MILF from Zona undid it all with a press release? He says, don't underestimate the chutzpah of these venal people to try because in Davos's new normal, all instances of public decency are simply a dog whistle for latent fascists and racists. But he says, given this string of failures, it's no wonder Pelosi is thinking about finally giving up her house seat. After all, what's left to do after nearly single-handedly destroying nearly every aspect of U.S. legislative procedure? He says, I feel her anyway. There are just no more glass ceilings to break. Now, he also says that Pelosi bluffed hard on the spending and infrastructure bills, but forgot that having a 50-50 split in the Senate and a united Republican front who knows they are in the midterm driver's seat meant that any single senator, senator rather, with a nominal D after their names could take the awesome power of the speaker's gavel and shove it right where the sun doesn't shine. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We are taking a look at the big picture, courtesy of Thomas Luongo. And I, you know, I don't know if I agree with everything he says here, but it seems like he he seems to be pretty based in reality, much more so than uh, many of uh, the, the mass media sources. So he was talking about how all of these failures that uh, that Pelosi and company have been uh, been facing in the last week or so are actually good news. Now, it doesn't seem like good news, and of course, this will be spun as this is the most horrible thing ever, and it's because you're all racist by the press, but, you know, look beyond the hysterics and try to see what's really happening. He says, Pelosi bluffed hard on the spending and infrastructure bills, but she forgot 
that, uh, you know, when you have a 50-50 split in the Senate and a united Republican front, it just takes one single senator who could take the awesome power of the Speaker's gavel and turn it around on her. By the way, he, he compliments that uh, that senator from Arizona and says she knows the situation in Arizona is a powder keg she doesn't want to be near when it finally explodes over the results of the election audit. Yeah, because that's still going on. Now, he says the Davos or Davos beholden Democrat and GOP reaction to these losses has been increasingly strident and desperate jawboning about the Delta virant boogeyman while everyone in the West is sick and tired of this nonsense. But he says, then remember, it was just Monday where Biden was offering $100 to please get the vaccine. And by the end of the week, they were saying the voluntary phase is over. By the way, that was, uh, I think that was uh, Governor Cuomo from New York who was saying that. He says, this is honestly a bigger needle scratch than when the media turned on a dime about the COVID lab leak theory two months ago. All of a sudden, millions of voices cried out in anger and couldn't be silenced. And he links to, you know, some some video from the thousands and thousands of people demonstrating in the streets of Paris, Nice, Montpellier, Nantes, Strasbourg, Reims, Toulouse, Marseille, and other cities across France. What were they protesting? Vaccine passports and mandatory vaccinations. This is happening elsewhere in Europe as well. And Thomas Luongo says at every turn, those in the highest cabinet positions of the Biden junta embarrass themselves with doublespeak and cognitive dissonance that even the most mind-virus-addled normie can see as illogical. He says, I know there's no getting through to some people, but it doesn't uh, take them to have a critical mass, but it doesn't take them to have a critical mass, simply step back, fold their arms, and say, you know what? No. Saying no to Davos, however, he says, comes with a terrible price. Just ask the Brits who've been locked down for more than a year since winning their freedom from the EU via Brexit. Now add in the vagaries of Mother Nature dealing with an increasingly precarious dance between the Earth's weakening magnetic field and the sun's increasing activity. And we have extreme weather all over the globe, making every day of every climate alarmist ninny with a diaper on their face and a stick in their rear. The western half of the U.S. is either on fire or suffering from a crop-destroying, herd-depleting drought, which has everyone looking to a dysfunctional, if not outright paralyzed, FedGov for help. But there's none forthcoming. Supply chains for basic goods like meat, lumber, electricity, and water are failing, and the damage done to them will take years to undo. Now, these natural disasters wouldn't be so difficult to deal with if Davos hadn't pursued this great reset operation in the first place and carried it through the first six months of Biden's anti-administration. But, you know, in for a penny, in for millions dead for the greater good. He says Davos doesn't even care about the people who are its staunchest supporters, no less those who it wants to destroy. Meat eaters, individualists, white people and Christians, you know, most Americans. Just look at their home turf of Europe. Floods wiped out whole towns in Germany while the presumed incoming leader, handpicked of course, Davos style, cried crocodile tears over hundreds dead while virtue signaling about climate change and laughing at the plight of the plebes he's expected to lead in a few months. At the rate the protests in France are going, the ECB will go bankrupt just supplying the, the police with uh, tear gas and water cannons. If you don't realize that the Delta variant only exists to make the excuse to cancel any election that is set to go against Davos, then he says you aren't paying attention at all. We've reached the point 
and the moment where Davos's plans to vandalize the American and European people are finally coming to fruition. And from this week's events forward, he says we will be in a state of emergency described brilliantly in V for Vendetta, where the media is used to ratchet up the fear beyond any reasonable level, and the people watching increasingly say, oh, bollocks. Or as we say here in the United States, blank this noise. He says the ride from here will only get worse, and our only recourse is to look to shoring up our local communities rather than hope for any saviors at the ballot box. The rules have changed. He says democracy has been outlawed and and the courts neutralized. The push for total control over your movement, your thoughts, and your basic right to make your way in the world is no longer protected by law. In fact, the law is openly hostile to your very existence. Just ask Australians and Canadians. We've always known that public health was the cheat code to tyranny. Now we're seeing it weaponized in a way that isn't just creepy. It's chilling in its inhumanity. But the kids still think communists care about them. He says there's an urgency to this that wasn't there before. In the days after neutralizing Trump, they backed off thinking there was more time, that there was more than a full year to step up or to stepwise up the pressure on us. But it turned out that COVID-19 simply wasn't deadly enough and therapeutics for it strong enough to unmask the agenda behind the operation. So he says Don Lemon can just get stuffed if he thinks we're going to give up our livelihoods when we could just buy ivermectin over the freaking counter and man up. But that's not something Don's good at. He says, I suggest locking Don in his office and he can door dash his tofurkey and bean sprouts, bean sprouts rather, in between segments of his unwatched television gig subsidized by fake Fed funny money. But no toilet paper for him or the vaxxed. That needs to be reserved for real men eating the meat and growing the soybeans and the sprouts while we sort out the pulpwood shortage he helped create. So while they think it's time to turn the unvaxxed into scapegoats for why we all can't have nice things, he says that's going to quickly turn against them. People like Don Lemon are there to create the consensus to justify the pogroms they envision in their little oxygen-starved brains. He says I'd smile and say something pithy like, Molen Labe but it would be just a little too on the nose. Now, from here, he goes into uh, what's going on with the Wall Street to the long dark or just long dollars. But the bottom line is this. He says, in the end, it's not all gloom and doom. The signs are everywhere that the bonds holding this cartel of oligarchs together are breaking. In fact, he's talked about this in previous pieces that he links to in this article. In fact, he says, honestly, you'd have to be a complete nincompoop to think that Jamie Demon and the narcissists on Wall Street will roll over to Herr Schwab without going a few rounds in the oligarch version of the UFC octagon. So Yellen may be trying to destroy Wall Street for Schwab, but Powell and the FOMC are still on the job, even if they sound as incoherent as on inflation as the CDC director does on, uh, well, everything. He says, I ask you to think about the last two Fed meetings. First, he drained overseas markets of dollars by raising the reverse repo rate to 0.05%. This week, he created a standing repo facility for for foreign counterparties to hand them back those dollars. They'll do this only because they're now desperate for them, but it will drain them of their high-quality repo collateral, in other words, U.S. Treasuries. Since the Fed knows there will be no U.S. Treasuries issued for the next few months, thanks to the debt ceiling kerfuffle being unresolved, they need a supply of them to hand back to the banks they know are going to be in need of them. The result was the first one-plus trillion print of the Fed's domestic reverse repo 
facility, which hands treasuries back to the banks in exchange for dollars, providing them with now very scarce collateral. Now, downstream from this should further destabilize overseas markets, in other words, Europe, while handing Wall Street and domestic banks all the collateral they could ever need to cover this dangerous period that we're entering. So his point here is, he says, the storm created by Davos has reached landfall. And the next two months will tell us who is and who is not still on their payroll or is compromised by them. He says, to me, the key is the Fed. We'll find out soon enough if Wall Street really isn't down with the common turn. Either way, he says, we've run out of time to prepare. Check out the story in the links at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I I can't recommend strongly enough taking a look at Thomas Luongo's article in the show notes just because... If, if you have questions about some of the, the terms he's using or some of the uh, things that he's citing, you can follow the links and find out more about them. That's assuming that, you know, your goal is to get more information. You're not just looking for, you know, give me something that will make me mad. I mean, come on. My red meat throwing days hopefully are over. But uh, this is the kind of stuff that when you start to realize, wow, there's there's some real mendacity in, at play here. It's, it's a little bit disheartening, but onward we go. I think media bias has been a major dynamic in our growing societal chaos. And I have an excellent article here from James Bovard that came out over the weekend, which uh, indicates the memo apparently has gone out for the mass media to become even more biased in an effort to save our democracy. No wonder our trust in the media continues to tank. James Bovard writes, the Washington Post media columnist is summoning saviors because our democracy is under attack. This is Margaret Sullivan he's referring to. She wants Washington journalists to adopt a pro-democracy frame and start being patriotic. Now, reporters should cease focusing on winners and losers in political skirmishes and instead ask who is serving democracy and who is undermining it. I don't know about you, but just, just as an aside here, if we replaced the word democracy with the party... This would make a whole lot more sense because this sounds exactly like how a good party, you know, uh, subscriber would 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 put the information. This is the way they would describe it, especially if we're talking the Communist Party. (laughs) From Sullivan's view, he says media coverage has been fatally handicapped by purporting to accurately portray political developments. Instead, it's time for reporters to take sides on the barricades. Now, Bovard says Sullivan's prescription for the press corps is reminiscent of a corporation that's almost bankrupt and gambles everything on a desperate Hail Mary pass. Last month, he's talking about June, the Reuters Institute reported that only 29% of Americans trusted the news media. That's the lowest rating of any of the 46 nations surveyed. A Gallup poll last last year rather revealed that 86% of Americans believe the media was politically biased. Practically, the only folks who don't recognize the bias are those who share the media's slant. But according to Sullivan, the problem is that some journalists are still betraying the nation by excessively focusing on the facts. 
That's the same perspective of Stanford University journalism professor Ted Glasser, who recently asserted that journalism should free itself from this notion of objectivity and become overt and candid advocates for social justice. I already thought they had, but hey, (laughs) silly me. James Bovard says Sullivan anchors her column with a quote from Norm Ornstein, a fixture of Washington think tank since the Calvin Coolidge administration. Ornstein warned that balanced treatment of an unbalanced phenomenon distorts reality. How can we know Ornstein is a reliable sage? Well, after Biden was inaugurated, Ornstein tweeted, I am so relieved, so happy, and so proud that this wonderful, grounded, decent, compassionate, and patriotic man is our president. Now, Sullivan's own columns reveal her belief that journalists should glorify high-ranking government officials. Last week, last month, rather, thousands of pages of heavily redacted emails from COVID czar Anthony Fauci exposed his flip-flops on the benefits of mass panic and the efficacy of face masks and lockdowns. They also revealed his concerns to squash any allegations that COVID-19 emerged from a Chinese lab bankrolled by the U.S. government. Fauci responded to the controversy by sainting himself and ludicrously proclaiming that science and the truth are being attacked. And Sullivan raced to the rescue with a column headlined, Only in our anti-truth hellscape could Anthony Fauci become a supervillain. Sullivan, like the clueless policeman on the South Park cartoon, assured readers, there's nothing to see here. Move along. Sullivan concluded no one should claim that Fauci is infallible, but worshipping him regardless is vital for democracy. Now, Sullivan's recent column was sparked by her rage over the press coverage of the first hearing by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's panel on the January 6th Capitol clash. Sullivan lamented the Democratic leadership has been trying to assemble a bipartisan panel that would study that mob attack on our democracy. Sullivan summarized the hearings as somber, powerful, pointedly non-political testimony from four police officers attacked during the insurrection. Yeah, non-political except for the message that some protesters were fascist traitors, as Representative Jamie Raskin from Maryland declared. The congressional panelists and police concurred that all of the 9,000 protesters near the Capitol were terrorists, a label that now apparently applies to anyone in the same zip code when political violence occurs. The hearing offered demagoguery in lieu of disclosure, and was choreographed to give congressmen a chance to cry for the television cameras. Neither Sullivan nor anyone at that hearing voiced any concern over the continued refusal to disclose 14,000 hours of surveillance videos taken inside the Capitol on January 6th. Key evidence that could settle some of the controversies around that day. The panelists ignored the reports by the Inspector General and others that exposed the stunning failures of readiness by the FBI, Capitol Police and other agencies on January 6th. Nor were there any questions about what role, if any, FBI undercover agents or informants may have had in that day's mayhem. It was as if the recent revelations of the FBI's role in masterminding the purported plot to kidnap Governor uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer never occurred. Now, James Bovard points out Sullivan probably considers her own work as a model for responsible advocacy. One week before the election last year, Sullivan tweeted her approval of a post column on Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and the politics of unconditional love, understated and incisive. That column by the Post Monica Hess exonerated the presidential candidate for his son's crimes and concluded that Joe Biden might be the dad that America dreams of having. 
During his decades in the Senate, Biden was renowned for championing punitive crime bills to impose his favorite cure, lock the SOBs up. Sullivan will join Hunter Biden on the roster of guest speakers this fall for a Tulane University course on media polarization and public policy impacts. A better headline for Sullivan's recent column would have been the Hunter Biden laptop recipe for saving democracy. After revelations began pouring out last fall from the laptop that Hunter Biden left at a Delaware computer repair shop, Twitter and Facebook banned reposts of the New York Post exposés on the laptop's contents. National Public Radio and many other outlets derided the laptop excerpts as Russian disinformation. The mainstream media succeeded in minimizing the story's impact on the election, regardless of subsequent revelations confirming the laptop's authenticity. Perhaps such sensitivity helped inspire Sullivan's triumphal column just after Biden's victory on how the media saved democracy. How can journalists tell, though, who is serving democracy? Most Washington journalists reflexively presume that being pro-government is the same as being pro-democracy. The New York Times reporter covering the Justice Department, Katie Benner, evinced this mindset when she denounced Trump supporters as enemies of the state in a tweet this week. Benner, Benner believes that journalists must take action if a politician seems to threaten the state. By the way, prior to joining the Times, she wrote for the Beijing Review owned by the Chinese Communist Party. Sullivan never explains how Washington reporters ever became qualified to serve as grand inquisitors for democracy, casting judgment on every politician and proposal. Most reporters have the same level of intellectual curiosity as the average lottery ticket buyer. Reporters react to the word bipartisan like cocaine addicts desperate for another political virtue signal. And he says Sullivan's panacea is also suspect because most Washington press poobahs show more affection for Leviathan than for democracy. The Washington Post devotes far more news hole to publishing leaks from FBI officials than to exposing FBI abuses. Washington Post columnist Eugene Robinson whooped, God bless the deep state, touting his blind trust in federal agencies with vast secretive powers. Earlier this week, Washington Post columnist Max Boot gushed that Saudi Arabia is becoming more progressive than America because the government was forcing Saudis to get uh, vaccinated. By the way, Boot later deleted that tweet. Sullivan is seeking to inflame the zealotry of a group that's already fanatically in favor of authoritarian COVID policies. Vox senior correspondent Ian Milheiser yesterday, that would be Thursday, the 29th of July, urged, urged Congress to financially destroy anyone who does not get jabbed. Quote, Congress should increase the income tax rate on taxpayers who are unvaccinated and who have no legitimate religious or medical reason to be unvaccinated to 99%. That sounds like slavery. Huh. Molly Jang, fast editor-at-large for the Daily Beast, endlessly sneers at anyone who refuses to mask up, deriding Representative Thomas Massey from Kentucky for refusing to wear a mask on the House floor for choosing one of the stupidest hills to die on. Massey had COVID and cites a bevy of scientific studies to show that he, like other COVID survivors, have natural immunity and don't need a vaccine. But much of the Washington press corps has zero tolerance for any argument not forcing people to get vaxxed. So instead of describing journalists who who focus on facts as political reporters, Sullivan urges that they be called government supporters. Or government reporters, rather. Actually labeling most Washington reporters as government lackeys would be a lot more apt, says James Bovard. It would be criminally naive to expect such lackeys to cherish Americans' rights and liberties more than their own paychecks 
and prestige. This guy gets it. I have a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Feel free to check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. If you're one of the lucky people who is moving to the Intermountain West and your journey takes you to Utah, particularly to southern Utah, this is where you need to turn to make sure that you have your financing in order so when you find the home of your dreams, you can pull the trigger. You don't have to you don't have to wait around because homes don't wait around on the market. Wow, they are snapped up quickly. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability and they have the clout to get you that loan that you need without delay. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call them at 435-703-4522 or stop by their office at 619 South Bluff in St. George. couple quick stories I want to share with you in the, the final segment of the show here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the remedy for widespread deceit and misinformation. Karen Kwiatkowski says, what you want to do is make sure you're choosing your words carefully. She says, what we say can shape how we think and what we do. For example, the use of profanity when you stub your toe can actually help the pain. Okay, now I don't recommend recommend doing that in earshot of your mother, but she actually has a link that says you can trust the science on this one. When you cuss when you stub your toe, it helps you manage the pain. Maybe you have to use a synthetic swear word. Oh, fiddle dee dee. You know, anyway. She says, sadly, the world is far beyond the toe stubbing stage. But profanity by itself is not the answer. She says there are other words we should be using daily, words far more powerful and effective for what we face today. Now, tyrant is one of those words. In fact, she says uh, this last week, Congressman Thomas Massey repeatedly used two words that we should keep handy. Tyrant was one, and it's pal tyranny. These things, by the way, show up a few times in the 1776 Declaration of Independence. People living on the North American continent were kind of frustrated with a distant, elite, grasping monarch and his aggressive army, drunk on arrogance. The tyranny of King George in terms of liberty and economy was pretty mild compared to what Americans have suffered at the hand of their own elected government since the turn of the 20th century. But we're a very different people than those who engaged in the war for independence. We are less bold, less brave, less faith-filled, and less confident than those who hopped on ships and left home with whatever they could carry, knowing they would never, ever return to the place of their birth or see their parents or remaining family again. And she says, in that sense, we deserve exactly what we're getting from the rampant and vile statism that dominates the United States today. To get better, we ought to practice using the word tyrant and tyranny each day. Now, if you're not familiar with this word, look it up. Tyranny is arbitrary or unrestrained exercise of power, despotic abuse of authority, and a tyrant is one who exhibits this behavior. Congressman Massey also used the word hypocrite, and it's a wonderful and popular word. We often use it to refer to the very rich and famous. Now, Karen Kwiatkowski Kwiatkowski says we are less likely to apply this word routinely to government bureaucrats and politicians. In fact, we're more likely to call someone who is employed by government a hypocrite. Libertarians get this all the, ki- all the time with, uh, how can you criticize the government when you work for it? 
then when we call out the actual politicians, then we would call out the actual politicians and organizations who facilitate the tyranny. Hypocrites, she says, should be directed at our government and its spokespeople and defenders every minute of every hour of every day. Here's another helpful word, liar. Now, warning, this is a four-letter word, and it can cause a fight-or-flight response. It's widely used by the state toward its citizens when we, the people, make an observation about something the state has done or proclaimed. For example, since the coronavirus fiasco, a government gain-of-function-enhanced virus leaked from a government lab, resulting in a government-directed shutdown, a government-funded vaccine development with government-required genetic therapy development, and with government-exempted safety and testing protocols, to government-mandated injections to vaccine passports issued and mandated by government. We've had a lot of citizens and organizations in this country called liars, and in many cases had their lying words and voices removed from the public discourse. Similarly, the 21st century treatment of Julian Assange, of Craig Murray, of Daniel Hale, or a host of journalists and whistleblowers, that is, removal of these people from public life whether it's via imprisonment or, in some cases, state murder, as we logically suspect with Michael Hastings or even political blackmailer Jeffrey Epstein. To put it simply, the state and the corporate elites and sociopaths who manage it, in effect and in practice, declare all these enemies of the state to be liars. But if we point out, timidly and mouse-like, that the good Dr. Fauci has reversed himself on masking, lockdowns, death rates, infection rates, treatments for viral infection, his role in funding gain-of-function research of coronaviruses at UNC and and Wuhan, his patents, the list goes on. It's we who are the liars, we who weave conspiracies, we who don't have the big picture, and who need to be shut up or locked up. So she says, I added liar to the list. That's a hard word. For kind Christians and kind people in general, this can be difficult. But a name for the devil has always been the great liar. To lie is to violate the ninth commandment. And liars in government service have been and remain today the absolute cause of literally millions of human deaths. Massive harm and destruction of the global environment and global fraud. Lies never solve the problem but are always employed to to cover them up. So call them out. The other L word that has fallen out of favor and in a world of global statism that's fallen out of favor for good reason is liberty, a lovely and powerful word. We see liberty in advertisements and company names and newsletter headers, but it has a grace and nuance that really needs to be inserted into our daily conversation. She says for her as a horse lover, I think about a way of working a horse called at liberty. It's handling and communicating with a horse without leads or physical restraints relying on a mutual recognition of man and horse, respectful communication, identifying and encouraging points of agreement, to watch horses work with their people at liberty, or to do it yourself, is to become aware of the intelligence, peace, and complexity of the world in front of us, and to experience that role in in our role in that world completely. What a wonderful blessing, she says, to communicate and to consent, to lead and follow without force, to choose your direction and action as one, and as a team. Being at liberty is not only our God-given and God-created state of being, it's also how God speaks to us and leads us. Note that this is completely antithetical to how the state relates to us. Removing the very concept of liberty is, and always has been, a method of state control. Many on the right deplore the elimination and weakening of religion, the secularization of society, or the actual assumption of a state religion all of which are hallmarks of a well-developed state. 
But without understanding our natural and spiritual state as individuals, the solutions proposed by left and right, solutions that entail a better or different state, are doomed and costly. And she says, I'm going to add two of my favorite words, no and mine. Now, if you've dealt with toddlers, you may have heard these words often used together. Please reinsert them into your own vocabulary and use them every day. No is useful as an initial response to anything and everything. There's no harm in saying yes later, but this day and age, no must be your first response to anything and everything you see, read, or hear from the state, state entities, state spokesmen, including most media outlets. To be safe, one may follow this up with a ma'am or sir. It could be softened with, I don't understand, or I cannot verify that, but she says, keep no handy and use it often. She also says mine is important as it speaks to ownership, something the state, the left, and globalists and elite do not believe you deserve or need. The infamous words of Klaus Schwab, you will own nothing and be happy, remind us that mine is a word that will not be allowed. The horrendous statist push is already on to tag and bag every human to plug every individual into a centralized electrical communication grid whereby their needs will be completely met by the state based on compliance. Proclaim loudly, my body, my choice. Politicians in the left will instantly recognize this phrase and asserting what we own, our bodies, our thoughts, our homes, our autonomy, our communications, scribblings, dreams, and papers is fundamental to every part of your existence and historically sound. Lastly, she says, we must always remember to say thank you. Very often in times of stress and tension and fear, we forget we have much to be thankful for. Like profanity, saying thanks and recognizing the great blessings we already have at hand at our disposal here and now both relieves stress and empowers. Gratitude is something the state also insists on as the high chancellor sputters to his staff in V for Vendetta, I want everyone to remember why they need us. Something that valuable to the state, as we see in both art and life, is a tool, a powerful tool, to help us break the state by building decentralized relationships and communities. Seven words. These words assert our power, exercise our skills of observation and logic, and are bold, brave, and honest. Use them now, she says, because each one, tyrant, hypocrite, liar, liberty, no, mine, and thanks will certainly and almost absolutely be banned as a centralized global state advances. That's a pretty powerful essay, which is why I included it in today's show notes, which you can find at the com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.